Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. We have sort of uh, taken a little lazy boat on uh, the theme of discipleship. And we wanted to see, well, discipleship is in the Gospels. And Jesus certainly says we're to go out and preach the gospel to all nations and to disciple them, whatever that means. And so we figure, well, the best way to know what that means, how to understand what the noun or the verb would mean to disciple, to be a disciple, as the gospel leaves Judaism and moves out into the world of the Gentiles, well, the book of Acts tells us exactly what that is. I think we often forget that the way to determine how to fulfill the commands of Jesus in many ways is found in the book of Acts and in the epistles. That's where you go to flesh it out to to find out, well, how is this supposed to work in in the real world, particularly a real world of people who aren't Jewish, people who don't have a Jewish background, people who did not begin their life, at least in that day, with the Bible behind them. And so discipleship, the beginnings in the church, and we are going to get to the end of Acts chapter 2 where discipleship is clearly delineated, the, the methods, the means You know, what is a church supposed to look like? And so we will be getting there, but it's uh, along the way, there's just too much good stuff to bypass. So we start in Acts chapter 2, where the day of Pentecost comes, and the Holy Spirit comes in a visible way of flames and fire on believers who were assembled together. So there's the event of Pentecost. We've gone over that. We've dealt with Joel chapter 2. And again, remember, Joel says there's going to be last days. And I always go over this. I I try to drop off or have less and less drop off as I go by. But this is just so important to have in in our minds. And not everybody's here every week. So Uh, I just always want to remind everyone that this is how the gospel begins with a framework of where the gospel sits in the history of redemption. We need to know that. First... uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost starts there. And so that's where we should start and be clear. So Joel speaks of last days. Peter quotes the prophecy of Joel. There's going to be last days. And in those last days, God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. So the last days begin with the day of Pentecost very clearly. That's why Peter is quoting it to explain what was happening. But the last days also have a culmination in the day of the Lord. And as we see how Jesus himself brings the language, the apocalyptic language of Joel and other Old Testament passages together, we see that this day of the Lord introduces the new heavens and the new earth, the day of judgment uh, leading to eternity, eternal life and eternal death. What happens in the middle? Joel says in the middle, everybody's going to be calling on the name of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In between the day of Pentecost and the day of judgment, this is what we're supposed to be focusing on. This is what we're supposed to be about. Others try to insert things in here, and if the rest of the New Testament you know, actually talked about other things to be inserted, I'd say sure, but the rest of the New Testament doesn't say anything beyond this. So we're to disciple the nations. That's Jesus, with the commandment that Jesus leaves us with at the end of every gospel. So a 
good picture of the history of redemption uh, and the place and space that we are at right now uh, is there. I hope that uh, visualization is helpful. And don't forget, there is a last day. The last days lead to the last day, that last day of judgment, um, where all men will be there. We continued in Acts 2 and uh, with the uh, next little section where Peter is going to bring what amounts to an indictment. It sort of starts off like not. It sort of starts off with some historical observation, but it ends up in an indictment. And so Peter starts out with men of, of Israel hear these words, a call to listen soberly. What Peter is about to say, what he has already observed and what he is about to present is important, and everybody should, as Chris prayed this morning, be attentive to it. Be sober-minded about the message. Collect yourself and, and realize this is some of the most important uh, material, information, truth, reality that you will ever hear. Uh, the rest of your life is supposed to flow from it. It's not a sideshow. It's the foundation of everybody's life. So Peter's personally engaged with his audience. He has a message to impact everybody. And just shows that whenever we witness, we need to always be personally engaged. Everyone matters. We need a sincere appeal. Men of Israel hear these words. And he introduces his topic, his topic that's his main one. Joel was not his main topic. Joel was but an explanation leading to his main topic. It's Jesus of Nazareth. There's this person who has historical identity. And Jesus or Peter identifies him as the historical person whom all were in some manner aware of. Jesus was somewhat of a household name in Judea at that time, and in Galilee for sure. And over several years of Jesus' ministry, he had, <clears throat> there was a lot of conversation and speculation and gossip about Jesus. And as we look outside of the, of the New Testament, Jesus is attested as a historical person everywhere. He's assumed to be a real person who lived in history, even outside of the Bible. There's historical testimony that Jesus was a person who lived in history and died. Um, and we'll look at those kinds of things later. But he's one of the most historically attested and verified persons from ancient history. And Peter's main message is this, is that Jesus was attested or approved to you by God with mighty works and signs and wonders that God did through him. There's this divine witness that Jesus wasn't an ordinary person. He wasn't just a leader. He wasn't just a nice guy. Jesus was the son of God, and God attested to that continually. God approved him. God corroborated him. God affirmed and verified and certified that this was his only son, his monogenes. Now, Jesus was attested by the Old Testament scriptures, which were continually brought up by Jesus himself and John the Baptist. John the Baptist testified that the Holy Spirit came on him and that this is the Son of God. There's a voice from heaven on several occasions, three that I can remember. You know, twice God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son. And then in John 12, God said, I have glorified your name and will glorify it again. God speaking directly from heaven. Then there's the continual miracles that Peter mainly appeals to here, mighty works that no man of that day could accomplish. Only God could suspend the natural processes uh, that he had put in place at creation. Only God has the power to suspend those things and the ability to suspend those things and work something contrary to them. 
And in every case, they were things that either showed Jesus was God as power or was a sign pointing you back to the Old Testament, like the water being turned into wine. Jesus walking on water was to demonstrate his, uh, some things. Jesus stilling winds and waves. I mean, who has that power but God? Um, and, but most of the miracles were healing miracles. They did people good. Jesus went about doing good. There was disbelief in his miracles then, and it was out of, not that they hadn't seen them. People actually saw his miracles, but said, well, you know, this really isn't God's power. This is the devil's power. See, people who don't want to follow the Lord, who do not want to hear that Jesus is the Son of God, they will always come up with rationalized statements. Well, he isn't, wasn't the Son of God, or miracles aren't true, God doesn't exist. I mean, all these things. But history attests that Jesus was a miracle worker. Even radical scholars nowadays are forced, forced is the word, to admit and acknowledge that historically Jesus was seen as a miracle worker. And so the problem with miracles is not historical, it's philosophical. If someone wants to deny God, then they must necessarily deny miracles. And so again, you young people, when you hear these denials of God, don't think that people are going, well, I'm compelled to by the evidence to deny God. That is not so at all. They are compelled by their own personal opinion, and they're going to throw it out there and state it in such a way as to try to convince you that it actually has validity, and it doesn't. It's just their opinion. Historically, Jesus existed, and historically, he worked wonders. That is undeniable, unless, of course, you don't want to hear it. And Peter ends this, this little section here. He appeals to people's conscience. Hey, this was done in your midst. You yourselves know these things. And appeal to their conscience. That God had worked miracles in their midst was undeniable. They knew it. They all knew it. Even the ones who were reinterpreting who Jesus was. They all knew that he worked miracles. And so here it is in witnessing when we talk to people, we need to appeal to the things that you know and that you're sure of and that they pretty much know. Because remember, everybody has a conscience. Everybody's made in the image of God. Don't ever forget that in witnessing. See, the world wants to reevaluate, reinterpret people and say that people are just blobs of protoplasm. They don't have any innate uh, sense of anything. They're blank slates, whatever. And that's absolutely not true. And always remember that in your witnessing. Even the most hardened, profligate person is in the image of God. And they can deny it, they can explain it away, they can do whatever they want, but they can't escape the reality that they're in the image of God. That's stamped on them from creation. And just remember that. And so when you're appealing to people, appeal to what they ultimately know, they ultimately have a conscience toward. There's an authority beyond them, and they know it. Everybody knows it. And that's why they go around trying to excuse it or reinvent things or do all these other things. They know there's an authority and appeal to that. Appeal to what you know to be in people's hearts. We looked at Acts 10 to sort of reinforce this. In Acts 10, Peter again is speaking toward Cornelius and his household. And it's like it's just almost an exposition of Acts 2.22. Um, I just love it. I always love read when I get to it in my reading. I'm like, okay, here's Peter. I get to read this. It's really great. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
an expansion of what he had said about signs and, and wonders and powers. The Holy Spirit and power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. God had approved him. You know this and we are witnesses of these things. He did both in the land of the Jews and the Jerus and Jerusalem. Christianity did not begin in a corner, did not begin as some mystery religion in some household with someone talking about you know, fancy philosophical things and secret things. All of this was done open. Jesus Christ was born in the open. He lived in the open. He had his ministry in the open for all to see. The only, thing, the only things that people, all that people didn't have access to were those who weren't his disciples, his, in which he conveyed to them things which they were to later convey to the world. Christianity is an open book to all. The Bible's an open book to all. Well, the indictment now turns from just sort of giving some background, some evidence for it to verse 23. Peter continues, this Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So why don't we pray? Ask the Lord again just to be with us. Heavenly Father, we come to a place in your word and, and just ask first of all that your Holy Spirit would just bear witness to it. Lord, we can see the logic of it. We can even see the reason of it. Lord, the power of it eludes us. We can't come up with that ourselves. Lord, this is your word, your word speaking to all, but unless and until you speak to it in our hearts personally by your Holy Spirit, it just, we just feel like it's not really ours. Lord, we ask you to speak your word this morning. We're going to look at your son, how he journeyed from ministry to the cross, the pathway by which he was delivered up into the hands of wicked men. Lord, be with us this morning. Lord Jesus, this was your personal journey. You took it for our sakes. Lord, we want to be with you in it. We want to know and feel and have a sense of what it was for you for three years to understand that this is where you were going. It was in the back of your mind always. And as your ministry continued, it became more and more in the forefront. And Lord, we just want to, we want to see it, we want to know it, we want to appreciate it. And uh, Lord, as Peter, Peter said, we want to think of it soberly. We want to soberly embrace it. But Lord Jesus, we belong to you. Speak to us. Heavenly Father, you are our Father. We just want that Abba Father, Holy Spirit, to be in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the second part of the indictment against the audience. And when you're bringing the gospel to people you know, okay, I'm going to tell you about Jesus, then you go, ah, I've got to get to the part where you're a sinner and you're in real trouble. And it's kind of the, the, the tougher part of, of the gospel. And here Peter comes to that place. Okay, here is Jesus who did these miracles. You all know about it, but now I've got to bring you to understand that his crucifixion, though it was purposed by God and determined beforehand by God, your hands got blood on them. You were part of it. You participated. God had already done everything necessary to approve Jesus of Nazareth as his Messiah, as Son of God. God had done everything he could 
in a sense. Everything that uh, was reasonable among men. But they still, they still, fully aware of this approval, they still participated in his death. So Peter continues with this Jesus. The Jesus he had just described. The Jesus who was delivered over by an unjust series of events to be put to death. No, there were plots and plans by human scheming. The crucifixion was ultimately not the result of that human scheming. Peter wants us to know that. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Whatever happened, whoever was culpable for this, however much somebody was culpable, the extent of it, in the end, the crucifixion of Christ is a sovereign act of God. And that's important for us to all grasp and rejoice in. Though the cross of Christ was the result of the plottings of men. It was predetermined and purposed long ago, even before the foundation of the world, before God ever made the universe, before the galaxies came into being. God had purposed this, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And then Peter says, you nailed him to a cross. And he's speaking to the crowd in front of him speaking to people who only two, roughly two months ago had been given the choice between Barabbas and Jesus and they all said, we want Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And even though they were not the Pontius Pilate, they were not the Roman authorities who ultimately had to put him to death. No one, you couldn't crucify somebody if you just wanted to, only a Roman authority could do that. But you all pushed and forced that Roman authority, Pontius Pilate. You forced him to put Jesus to death, or at least pushed him into it. Everybody knew it was a show trial. Everybody knew that it had been the result of a kangaroo court proceeding. But all still clamored for his death. All shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate was the catalyst but he was a willing participant in the end. You all nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. So this Jesus, the one who had been attested, he was delivered over by God's plan and people's hands. Plans and hands were involved in it. What does it mean, though, to deliver over? You at first just might think, well, it's just, you know, a common phrase until you start to look in the New Testament and you find that it's used all over the place very specifically for this delivering of Jesus to be killed. Deliver over in its just sort of simple rendering means to hand something or someone over to another person or to another circumstance. You are here and you have sort of, you know, some kind of uh, 
authority over something or some kind of ownership or some kind of, you, you, can, you can sort of run a situation, you're in charge of it, and you take a person in this case, and you take them from your place and space of responsibility, and you hand them over to someone else. Delivered over. And though the simple statement, you know, it's plain, Jesus was delivered over, the actual process is a chain of events. And you can trace, as it were, the chain of custody of Jesus from himself to the crucifixion. It's laid out very, uh, I don't know, in detail actually, in the New Testament. Now, though delivered over by the plan of God is sort of ambiguous in its initial statement, it's clear that he's being delivered over ultimately to be nailed to a cross, to be crucified. He's going to be delivered ultimately to the Romans for execution. But I want us to sort of look at this process, this chain of custody where you start with the Jesus who in a sense is a, is a free man and he ends up under Roman authority and on a Roman cross. And there are steps in his ministry, steps in his journey that sort of take you there piece by piece. So the first set of steps or the first real step we want to sort of look at is that Jesus himself in his ministry of approximately three years says on a number of occasions that this is what's going to happen to him. And he doesn't walk the opposite direction, but he walks toward it. His whole, from the middle of his ministry on, his whole direction is toward Jerusalem and the cross. Now the first time we read of this is in Matthew 16, verse 21. This was a watershed moment between Jesus and his disciples. In this chapter, some of you may remember that there was questions about, well, who is Jesus? Is he Elijah? You know, is he you know, someone risen from the dead? Just exactly who is he? And he asked the question to the disciples, and they say, well, people say this and that. And he said, well, what about you? What do you think? And Peter, of course, makes his great statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, this is a watershed moment. This is a big moment. Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been demonstrating how ministry is done. He's been teaching his disciples and privately taking his small group of disciples and teaching them in detail on things. Now he says, okay, the time has come. Now that you understand who I really am, we're gonna take a turn in our ministering we're going to start heading for Jerusalem. This is his messianic mission. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Mashiach of the Old Testament. Okay, I'm the Messiah. But here's what the Messiah is going to do. He warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. This is not the time to go out and proclaim the gospel. That time's going to come when you're empowered with the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. That time will come, and then you will preach to the whole world. Right now, I want you to keep it under your hat, because it'll just bring confusion, 
and confusion is not what he wanted. He wanted to pursue his ministry as he had been with statements that would appear vague to people who were somewhat disinterested but clear to those who cared. They should tell no one that he was the Messiah, not yet. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. This is going to happen in a city. And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the religious crowd, and be killed. It always amazes me that the greatest opponents of Jesus were the people who said they were the most faithful followers of God. In order to think, okay, well, that was something that really was isolated to Israel, and, you know, that hasn't happened in Christianity. 1,500 years of Moses and they had these fellows who were about to kill the whole entire point of God appearing to Abraham. About to kill him, the Messiah. They even claimed they wanted the Messiah. Oh, we're waiting for the Messiah. Well, in 2,000 years of Christianity, human beings are human beings, and we've had this occur over and over and over again. And so do not be naive when you're thinking of Christendom. It always kind of, I kind of wonder, well, you know, what's the audience of a book or what's the perspective of a book when someone's writing and they say, well, the church is this and the church is that. I'm like, what do you mean by the church? Do you mean perhaps those church folks or church, uh, would you say, denominations that have rainbow flags up? Is that what you mean? Do you mean denominations or groups that basically say the Bible really isn't the word of God? Is that who you mean? Or do you mean people who really believe in the Bible and follow Jesus according to his word and from their hearts love him and serve him and truly look for the hope of his second coming? And that's why when I hear, well, the church has got this problem or that, I'm like, will you please define the church before you say that? Please define your audience because it leaves me wondering, well, is this addressed to me or is this addressed to this sort of uh, church at large that have fallen into the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes just being a religious group that keeps going in its own momentum but has no real continuity with God? So always think about that. When someone says, well, the church ought to be this, or the church is that, or the church has failed. That's the only one thing. You know, America's a mess because the church has failed. I just, I want to pull my hair out when I hear that. I'm like, no, the church is not a mess because, or the, America's not a mess because church has failed. America's a mess because people are, are sinners. And you can't impose, you know, Christian laws on a country full of sinners and expect you're just going to come out shining. You're not. Sinners are sinners, and they will always be sinners, and they will always act out their sin. And depending on their worldview, which they have in their heads, but don't necessarily believe and live out, you're going to get all kinds of expressions of it. Could the church have done a better job here and there, perhaps? Yeah, maybe, but again, who do you mean? 
I know pr- plenty of individuals, I see them on YouTubes all the time who are out there really preaching truth, telling it like it is, and talking about all the social issues. I'm like, well, they seem to be doing their job. As a pastor, isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? Is that what Chris is supposed to be doing or anybody else is an elder? Are we supposed to be out there confronting the government? I don't think so. I don't, I don't see that in the New Testament. There will be individuals who will and will speak, but that's not my job. My job is to confront you, not them. Your job is to go out there and be a witness. Is the church as an institution supposed to be doing these things? Is the church even defined as an institution in the New Testament? I don't see that anywhere. And so just, you know, beware when someone says, hey, you know, there's all these religious groups and they're the church and things like that. Just filter through, what do they mean by that? And what does the Bible mean by that? And am I clear on it myself? But Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to that institution at this point, not full of godly people. There were some. Joseph of Arimathea. Others. Others believed. There will always be that in institutions themselves that maybe sport uh, sort of an interface that that is just not of the Lord really in the end, but there are some people still in it, confused and stuff. But when you go to those institutions, do not expect ultimately to get anything from them but what they are, institutions in the name of God only. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to face down this crowd, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and he's going to lose. He's going to be killed. Now think about it. What did the disciples think the Messiah was going to do? The Messiah was going to come and in their minds he's going to conquer the nations. The Messiah is going to come and get rid of these Romans who have invaded our land. And Israel will become raised up to be the head of the nations. That was their perspective. They had a view of Christendom that's very much almost like Christian nationalism. We're going to have, you know, God come in and he's going to, we're going to have righteous government and things like that. That's how they thought. But Jesus came and he said, I'm, you've just, we've just had this discussion that I am the Christ, you're blessed of the Lord, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, and now here is the messianic work that you have just started to be introduced to. The first thing he wants his disciples to know about the Messiah is he's not coming to establish some earthly kingdom. He's not coming to come into the world and fix all the political problems. The first thing he's got to do is he's got to deal with sin. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And of course be raised up on the third day. The messianic glory and the messianic triumph is neither worldly militarily, military or worldly political victory. He is to be killed and to be raised up. That's the mission of Messiah. So Jesus puts that out there. 
He's going to be delivered over in Matthew 17, 22 and 23. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And here we start to see this terminology. He's going to be delivered over. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And he uses the term Son of Man. And many of you think back to Daniel chapter 7 and that glorious coming of the Son of Man, that picture of him. He comes in power and glory. But this one who's going to one day come in power and glory, a second coming, this Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men right now. That's what's going to happen now. His coming in power and glory, well, that awaits a future time. Right now, this Son of Man has to first be delivered into the hands of men. Now, I'd already talked about chief priests and scribes and the elders, and, but here's just more general, the hands of men. And they are going to kill him. The Messiah is going to lose. They will kill him. But he will be raised up on the third day. Now, when they heard this, they were deeply grieved. Now, when you think back on the cross... Is that how you feel? Do you feel deeply grieved? Gosh, it was really bad that, you know, Jesus ultimately had to get killed. Just really a sad event. Is that how you think of the cross? Or do you see the cross as that place where the sins of every human being who will ever end up in eternity, their sins are dealt with on a just basis? See, the disciples didn't see that. Jesus was telling them that, but they still didn't get it. They were still just enamored with this idea of a Messiah who was earthly and political and militaristic. They were grieved because they thought, how can this be? They still didn't understand the glory of the Messiah is his death and resurrection. Matthew 20, 17 through 18, and Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, so they've gotten close to Jerusalem, and now he's almost there, and up means go up a mountain. We keep thinking of a map. Well, was he south of Jerusalem and had to go up on the map? And it's like, no. They always dealt with elevations because they were always walking. We're in cars, so if we go up and down hills, it doesn't matter a whole lot to us. You know, impacts perhaps our gas mileage, but we don't think much of that. But in that day, if you had to walk up a big hill... Okay, that mattered. And so that's how they saw things. He was about to go up to Jerusalem. They were near and they were about to go up to the Mount of Zion, as it were. And he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and, again, the third time, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to crucify. So they've gotten close to Jerusalem. This event is actually about to come to pass very soon, so Jesus gets more clear with the details. It's like this is all going to happen, and I want you to understand that it is going to come to pass. I've told you beforehand. I don't want your faith to be shaken or moved. I want you to understand that this is not an ultimate tragedy. This is going to end up an ultimate victory. On the third day, he will be raised up. 
The great power of the gospel is not fixing the human race on earth, not fixing governments, not fixing any of those things here on earth. It's fixing human beings. The great power of the gospel is the resurrection. He will be raised up on the third day. Notice every time Jesus talks about the resurrection, he says what? It's the third day, third day, in fulfillment of the Old Testament. So he's going to be handed over. Jesus knew what awaited him, and he looked at both the sufferings and beyond that, the glory. Matthew 26, the slide there is wrong. It's 26, 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these words, now he had just gone for almost two and a half chapters, some long chapters, by the way, on what we would call his parousia, his second coming, and the day of judgment. The disciples asked really several questions, and he sort of gritted it all out and said, okay, I'm going to give you answers to all these. And as I've said before, the way to understand Matthew 23, uh, 30 through the end of Matthew 25 is to figure out when is Jesus answering what question. And if you'll do that, you'll get really clear and you'll just go, okay, this is not as hard as I thought. But when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, and think about it, he just talked about what? I'm going to come with power and great glory. I'm going to come with the holy angels. There's going to be signs in heaven above and earth beneath. The whole creation is going to start to come unglued. As you work through the New Testament, you start to find that, yeah, the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. The pictures in the book of Revelation are pictures of heaven and earth fleeing away, of people calling for mountains and rocks to fall on them because the the great day of judgment, the day of the Lord has come and who is able to stand. This is not going to be a normal day. This is going to be a day when, as it were, the whole natural process of the universe will stand still. And God is going to intervene in this little bitty planet, the only place in the universe that God really cares about at this point. And he's going to show up. And everybody's going to see him. And Jesus is going to sit on the throne of his glory. I mean, these are just great things. I hope the Holy Spirit, when you read it, you know, fills your soul with that. When you're down and out, say, Lord, I just want to remember, there's one day you're going to come, you're going to sit on the throne of, the, of your glory And I'm going to be on the the side with the sheep. So this life and what I'm going through right now isn't quite as significant as one might think. Not in the bigger picture. Well, in the face of all that, what's the next thing he talks about? After he had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. We're two days away from what I've been telling you for months. Two days away. And the Son of Man is going to be handed over for crucifixion. You just have to wonder, what what were the disciples thinking? It's like, Lord, we had just been like shining in glory with you, and the next thing you know, you're telling us you're going to die, because they were still not clear. 
So Jesus told his disciples on numerous occasions in the Gospel of Matthew 4, at least, that he's going to be delivered over. And, well, the next sort of event or person in the chain of custody is Judas. Jesus is going to be handed over and killed, and the next step is Judas. Matthew 26, 14 through 16, Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? Now Judas had been with Jesus for several years. He had seen the miracles. He had seen him only do good. He had been in that inner circle of the twelve and heard teaching and explanations and saw things that the rest of the world wasn't fully privy to until the Gospels would be written. Pretty sure that Judas didn't start out thinking, well, I'm going to sell Jesus out for some money. Judas had been through the deprivation. He had been through the hardships. He had slept under the stars. He'd been exposed to the hard work. Sunrise to sunset, helping Jesus manage crowds. Crowd control. That's not easy, by the way. What happened to Judas? When did his heart start to step away from the glory of Christ that he saw continually in the miracles to where he started thinking of money? When and how did his heart grow cold and worldly and money, the value of money and the, I guess, temptation of money and the draw of money, here's Jesus And things started to go like this until he's ready to sell out a human being, first of all, a human being that he knows is going to get murdered and killed and crucified, a human being who he knew never did a thing to hurt anybody, a human being who was totally innocent, but he was more than a human being. He had seen the miracles, he had heard his words. He knew that he was from God and he is in the place where he's ready to sell this person for a little bit of money. Now, I don't know how much 30 pieces of silver would go, how far it would go at, at, you know, the Walmart of his day. But I'm pretty certain it wouldn't last very long. What happened to him? What are you willing to give me? They didn't ask him. He went to them. What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And you can just imagine his eyes as those pieces of silver just, you know, dropped into into that side of the scale. They were being weighed out. And yep, they weighed 30. They were true pieces of silver. And he just saw that scale tipping with all that in his mind, whatever that money would buy for him. 
From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus, that is, to deliver him over. He traded Christ for cash. I don't know about you, but I read this, I think, gosh, you know, Lord, if you don't keep my heart, I'll go the way of Judas. Is that how you feel? When your love for Christ begins to grow a little cold, get a little distant, a little bit more distant, that's just not a good direction. Keep your hearts, my brothers and sisters. Keep your hearts. And you young people, as you grow up into the world, the world is going to offer its temptations. There will be all kinds of schemes that will tell you you can get rich and you can have wealth. And Satan is going to come and he's going to make that just seem really full and it's really going to give you satisfaction. And you're going to start having to make choices in your own lives. What will I exchange for money and wealth? And the good life that it might seem to get me. Do not sell your soul for money. And then, of course, in modern America and all over the world, and in some places I wonder how health and wealth people succeed when they're in a, a country that has no money at all, where people are already poor. I guess they do. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a travesty. But anyone who says, I'm following Jesus, but they're in love with money, they are not going to have a good day of judgment. And so we, we are upset and distressed, rightly so, when the health and wealth preachers, we, we see them and hear them, and, and it grieves us. But remember, the people that listen, they've already made a decision to trade in Christ for money. Some of them are maybe true believers, and they're off the path, out in the weeds, and the Lord will bring them back, usually through some hard some hard training sessions. But Judas made this mistake. He let his heart grow cold. He became worldly. And they ended up valuing money above the Son of God. Incomprehensible. Well, the next group of people who are sort of in our chain of custody of Jesus as he's starting to be delivered over is the temple guard. Matthew 26, 47 through 50, while he was still speaking, behold, Jesus, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now you can read in Luke that they arrested him and you can't arrest someone unless you have authority. They were temple guards. Now he, Judas, who was betraying, him, betraying Jesus, gave them, this crowd, who had clubs and swords, they had power, they were bringing the, the, the arm of the government against Christ, gave them a sign saying, okay, you guys, whoever I kiss, he is the one, 
sees him. So as Judas and the crowd were coming, immediately Jesus, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. No anger. No reproofs. Just do what you have to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And now he's being delivered over to the Sanhedrin, to the leaders of the Jews. Matthew 27, 59 through 66, we won't be reading all of it, but just sort of some excerpts from it. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. Again, a kangaroo court. They're trying to manufacture a case against Jesus. They weren't looking for justice. They were looking for justification to kill him. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. I just, I just want to tell you, if people were to probably dig in my life, go years and years back, they could find some witnesses and they wouldn't be false. I was not a nice person. Even after being a Christian, there's some things I regret and am ashamed of. So it wouldn't take false witnesses to get me in trouble with this crowd. But here they got people to lie, false witnesses. Make up something about Jesus, stretch the truth. You know, yeah, he said he was going to destroy the temple and you know, raise it up again in three days. Well, technically he said that, but he didn't say that for anything except about his own body, the being raised up the third day. And though many false witnesses came forward, though many people were willing to do what God said don't do, Ten Commandments, don't bear false witness. It will distort justice. And when you distort justice, like is happening right now in our country, you will lose a whole social order. You cannot have a social order built on injustice or manipulated justice. Couldn't find anything against Jesus. Many false witnesses. But later on, two came forward and said thus and thus. When they finally asked Jesus himself, is this true? And Jesus, henceforth, you're going to see, you know, the Son of Man, the right hand of power. Henceforth, you're going to see what Peter's going to preach about in the end of his message. Him being by the right hand of God exalted. Henceforth, you're going to see me there. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? He's blasphemed, but wait a minute, how's he blasphemed? Jesus had raised the dead. They knew about it. Remember Lazarus? Big problem for the, for the Sanhedrin. Big problem for these leaders. Because he'd raised someone from the dead, and the guy who had been raised from the dead was known to be dead. Now he's walking around alive, and Jesus raised him. This is a big problem for them, so what did they do? Well, you read in, you know, uh, John 11... Well, we're going, to kill, we're going to kill Lazarus, too. We're going to get rid of that evidence. We don't need any more witnesses. Yeah, we've seen Jesus even raise the dead. 
But he's blasphemed because he says he's God. Doesn't work, does it? They're not going to believe anything other than what they want to. Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you all think, this whole council of what high priests, elders, leaders of the people? They said, he deserves death. Now they'd been up all night. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders, Matthew 27, 59 through 66, the end, all the chief priests and the elders and the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. They all discussed, they all agreed on the details of the conspiracy. Now come on, all of us remember when we were kids, some of you don't have to remember far, and you've been at home and mom and dad were gone, but now they're on their way back, you know it, and well, you know, you've done a few things you weren't supposed to be doing. So what do you do? He said, you know, we need to get together and we need to get our story straight. All right? Now, who taught you to do that, by the way? Did you take a class on conspiracies and how to avoid getting caught? Comes natural, doesn't it? Well, it doesn't go away when people get older. Okay, we have to confer together. We've got to get our story straight. We've got to get the case down, Pat, because we're about to go and present this now to the governor, and we have to look good. We have to be consistent. And by the way, there's this whole crowd of people that have been sort of back and forth about Jesus. We've got to convince them to deliver up Jesus. They conspired together. Now here's our Lord Jesus Christ. The one we know, the one we love, the one we hope in. Look what people were doing to him. What do you think is coming to America one day? Don't know when, but one day. This is what will happen to you. You will be deprived of justice. You will go about doing good. There won't be really any bad things someone can lay to your charge. I mean, you could probably come up with a lot of rotten things yourself. like you don't understand I don't love Jesus Christ enough. You don't understand. Every now and then I'm just really mad at this person or I've got envy and jealousy and I've gossiped. They won't be bringing those things up. They'll be saying, you believe on Jesus. You're a homeland terrorist. They're going to come at you every way and they are going to confer together behind the scenes and they are going to bring the full weight of government authority and government resources against you. It's going to happen. You need to be praying, Lord, when that day comes, give me the good, the good sense to know that this is what happens to everyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus. They're going to tell you you're an evil person, you're a troubler of society. They're going to have all their reasons why they're going to bring things against you. Are they going to put you in jail? They're going to take your stuff? Who knows what they'll do? But people are not nice.
You will go through what Jesus goes through, and Jesus tells you that. Now, when you're in a position where the whole weight of the, a government is against you, like they're just, you know, forget it, there's, there's no resistance, not going to work, can't hide anymore because there's too much surveillance in the world. Can't run to the hills like some people who say, well, I'm going to, you know, run off into the mountains and just live in the mountains and I'll escape the crazies. Like, no, you won't. Besides, that's not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be salt and light in the midst of a real world. We're not supposed to be running from it. We're supposed to be mixing it up with it. And if the consequences come for that, then they come. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But if you're in a state where they've isolated you, and that's what they will do, remember, they've they've been good at this for hundreds of years, thousands of years. They're going to isolate you. What's the best thing you could have in, in that isolation? A God who made the universe? Well, that would be good, right? Who God controls all things, you can say, Lord, you know, you control all things. This is under your sovereign control. I believe this is supposed to be happening the way it is. That would be good, right? But how about Jesus? Who can come down and say, Steve, I know exactly what you're going through because I went through it. You can deal with this, have faith in God and just the encouragement of Jesus in our own hearts by the Holy Spirit. And when they finally lead you away to wherever they're going to take you, the Lord will be with you and comfort you in a way that no other entity in the universe can. So you don't have to think a lot about, well, what do I say? Remember, Jesus said, don't get all worried about that. Just pray generally and say, Lord, when I'm there and I'm facing it, whether it's small, big, and sometimes you don't even know what's going on and they're confusing you by making you look bad even to yourself to where you're point like, well, maybe I am a rotten person. You know, after all, I do gossip. You just, just trust in the Lord Jesus. Say, Lord, just give me a clear mind. I'm not gonna give a lot of thought to what I'm gonna say because if I do, I might say some things wrong but I just pray and I trust you and I pray that you will give me the words to speak as you did so I can glorify you. Well, they bound him. The chief priests and the elders bound him. They had their temple guards and they bound him and they led him away put him in whatever the version of the cop car would be, drove him over to the pilot police station and dropped him off. They delivered him over. Matthew 27, 15 through 18, now the feast of the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. In that time they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. Pilate was an adept politician, or at least 
middle, middle tier politician, otherwise he wouldn't have the job he had. He was well acquainted with political intrigue and machinations. Envy was a standard operating procedure in that world. Some people think, oh, I'd really like to be up in, you know, into, the, into the world and be at the White House or something. No, you wouldn't. You know what the people are like who are there? Pilate. They didn't get there by being nice people. Some do. Most don't. Envy was standard operating procedure and, well, again, he knew that for envy they had handed him over. Envy. They traded in God because of envy. When something in a person's life will trade in God, how good is it? Can you get any worse than trading in God? And so my brothers and sisters, again, we learn from these things that jealousy and envy is awful, and when it's full grown, it can betray and kill the Lord of glory. Are you putting envy and jealousy to death? And it's going to pop up all over. doesn't mean I'm envious about things like, why would I even be envious of it? It's like, this is crazy. Envy. He knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? I mean, God just bearing witness to Jesus. He's done no evil. But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, trying to say, guys, this isn't a good thing. This is a distortion of justice. But rather, a riot was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Well, that probably doesn't fly with God, but we can give him a little bit of credit that he tried to have some justice for a season. And all the people said, his blood will be on us and our children. What an awful thing. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And the final step, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium, gathered the whole Roman cohort around them, stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, crown of thorns, hail king of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments on his back and led him away to crucify him. That's what's in that little phrase, delivered over. So I hope this has been a good reminder this morning that this is what our Lord Jesus did. And next week we're going to look at it, or next time, I won't be here for several weeks, next time it's by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that all of this happened. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne and again we just watch as you sovereignly in, in vivid detail. Lord, you've fulfilled your purposes in your Son. In your sovereignty, you ordained everything. We will soon see that people purpose things that you overrode. 
Men planned, but you purposed, and your purposes came to pass. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that every step of the way, that month by month as the time came closer, then it was weeks, then it was days, and then it was upon you, that you let yourself be delivered up into the hands of wicked men. We thank you for it. Lord, we're not always emotional over it, but we always thank you for it. And Lord, when that day comes for some of us here, if not all of us here, where we have to face the wrath of a, of a humanistic government that in its defiance against you has finally taken over the world and thinks that it's in charge of everything and is going to try to root out every last seed and every last root of faith in you. Lord, in that day we will be full of faith and full of joy and full of confidence as we bear witness to you and take what's coming knowing that you went through it yourself. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.